for those mistakes made by the EU that cost the UK a lot of money and a lot of harm, uh, I would have put that on the table, whether it's in the form of litigation or in the form of a request. But they chose not to do that. And I just think it's very hard for the UK to get a good deal when you go into a negotiation that way. At the same time, I can't blame the European Union mm. because they had, not, they had very little to lose. They were willing to give so little. It was always so tough. You talk about these protesters, and they're what I call the usual suspects. You know, they're the people that turn up and protest at absolutely everything, including my meetings, of course. But among them, more significantly, was one Jeremy Corbyn. That's the sort of behaviour I'd expect from an 11-year-old. But look, it's for him to decide how he behaves. It's not for me to respond in a, in a light manner. I think it's, 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 you know, beneath me to do childish tweets and uh, name-calling. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I am a little too excited about my guest today, Carol Cadwallader, the crackerjack reporter for The Guardian on all things Brexit, election and referendum tampering, Trump and Nigel Farage, and that rapacious empire of deceit, Facebook. I was talking to my partner this morning about how brilliant and fantastic and stylish and brave Carol Cadwallader is. And he took a look at her TED talk from a couple of months ago and said, well, that's because she looks and talks like you. And she was born in 1969 when you were born. Anyway, Carol is also sui generis. She spent the last two and a half years exposing the truth of the Brexit referendum and how influence ops often Russian, went into securing the ill-gotten leave vote. She's also explored the ties between Nigel Farage and Trump and Julian Assange and, yes, Roger Stone. Carol, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks so much for having me. Hi. Hi. So I am just going to declare a moratorium on the topic of Trump in London. Is that okay with you? Because <laughs> I don't care. I just don't care. I think that is the correct attitude. Yes, I, I also share that. I, I decided that I wasn't going to dignify him with my attention over the last couple of days. So we've, I've just let him get on with his state-sponsored holiday at Buckingham Palace. That's what it seems to be. Yes. I mean, it was funny because I was, all right, I admit, I did look at the pictures of the dresses to laugh at them. And also that eerie, I don't know if you've seen it, but picture of Ivanka and Jared uh, yes. Kushner standing. Yeah, that's worth looking at and laughing at a little bit. But I was also looking at Camilla Parker Bowles and thinking, God, <laughs> that scandal seems like a grain of sand compared to the pyramids we have now. Oh, I know. It was so cute. In the olden days, we used to have these yeah. sex scandals. Didn't he say, I wish I could be your tampon? <laughs> no, that's right. It was just so, it was such a quite, it, it was such a time of lost innocence. It really is. And that led me to dig up Trump saying he could have nailed Princess Diana, but he would have had to test her for AIDS first. <laughs> the class, the class just keeps on coming. I know that that I don't I don't even want to think about that to be honest with you. Let's just right. let's leave that okay. one. Let's leave poor princess die out of this. I think. I think that's right. All right. So what we'd always rather talk about is just 2016, the year that will stymie us and perplex us, and then our descendants for centuries probably. I wanted to ask you before I get you to sort of TED talk us through your TED talk. Do you remember in 2016? I'm sure you do. 
When Mark Zuckerberg said the idea that Facebook had contributed to the outcome of the American presidential election, he called it a pretty crazy idea, right? Mm, Yeah, I know. And then he said something that struck me the most, and it seems like the sophistry that you have devoted these years to dismantling. He said, people don't vote on what they see on Facebook. They vote on their, quote, lived experience. Uh, Yeah, I forgot forgot that, yeah. But it's like your TED Talk begins with taking that apart as a fallacy, uh, visiting this town in Wales where the lived experience was exactly at odds with the information they had seen on Facebook that goaded them to vote leave in the referendum. I just think the idea of lived experience is that so many of us, we spend so much time online these days don't we yeah i mean our lived experience is inside this digital space where there is just so many different forces at work which are kind of invisible and unknown to us that is our lived mm-hmm. experience now we're just mm-hmm. exposed to constant propaganda isn't it and much of it we you know we can't be sure about where it's coming from or whose interests it's in and we're all just sort of captive to that i think aren't we and you know, uh, you can be as vigilant as you like, but, you know, you're still prone. You're still prone and prey to it, I think. I think I've said this on the show before, but I was brought in to some propaganda maybe now two years ago. But I briefly believed that Antifa, the anti-fascist group, might be on par with the neo-Nazis. Like people showed me on Facebook, friends of mine, people in the right. media, pictures of cars burning and that these people were anarchists and they were going to torch everything. And, you know, I didn't go so far as to say that or spread that, but I really Mm. walked around with this idea that there was this danger from the left until Mm -hmm. I, and it takes work, you know, kind of interrogated what I was being told and pushed back on it. And then I thought, in little ways, this could be happening all the time that, you know, I have confirmation bias and I'm also surrounded every corner of my vision. I mean, I might not believe always political lies, but I think I bought some skin stuff recently that is oil from an actual snake. <laughs> <laughs> I know people who say to me, people who say to me, you know, advertising doesn't work. And I think really, because I'm constantly clicking on things, I feel like I'm so gullible towards this stuff. And I'm like, how do they know my taste in dresses so well? They're right. I do like <laughs> They've really nailed that motorcycle jacket that you like and now need another one up. (laughs) I think part of lowering our immune system, which, you know, I think Facebook does very well, has such an anodyne interface and sort of persuading ourselves that, oh, we've built up plenty of immunities to liquor ads. What we're Mm. just interested in is news. You know, Mm. no one would be converted by Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses online. And maybe they would be able to reject the snake oil that I buy. But they're mm. lulled into this like false sense that they're in a safe space and they're just reading news when they read the kind of fake stuff that you have just brilliantly managed to dig up around, in the case of Brexit, around uh, Turkish immigrants. What's kind of fascinating about that is that, you know, I feel that we're sort of scrabbling around in the darkness and it's been... You know, it's been this struggle to find out even really, really basic things about what happened in the referendum and and what was seen and, you know, what was happening online. So in that TED Talk is that I showed just a few of the dark ads. But the only reason we got those, we can see those now, is because our parliament, you know, has been involved in this 
high stakes standoff with Mark Zuckerberg, in which they've been saying, come to Britain, answer our questions and tell us what happened and explain the Cambridge Analytica scandal, etc. And he's been refusing. But they've got they've got a few crumbs out of them. And a few of the crumbs were those dark ads. But what, what I mean, what struck me the other day is just that it's extraordinary to me that actually you have no idea in the States um, of you, you haven't seen those ads that nobody's made that effort in America. And, you know, it's, it was because, you know, the, the, the committees before were being controlled by Republicans who didn't want this to come out. But, you know, you think it's this most, you know, this incredibly controversial election, you know, which the yeah. FBI have been pouring over. But that very, very basic thing about actually what people were seeing, what the Trump campaign was doing, what they were telling people, what Cambridge Analytica was doing. None of that has come out in the States yet. I mean, it is really astonishing that, you know, I don't want to push this immunity thing, but it's as though those friends of yours that tell you that they're safe, that on Facebook, you know, they, they don't fall for advertising or, or they don't fall for disinformation even. You know, it's as though we all have measles or anyone without the immunity has measles. And we're not asking whether it was germ warfare. You know, we mm, just are walking mm. around not trying to trace it to its source and moreover thinking that we have immunity to it, you know, even though we're using these weird expressions. I, I don't know if you've seen the work of Molly McHugh or the Oxford mm. Inst uh, Internet Institute, yeah. but, you know, where they regress certain memes and they, they pop up as soon as you get them. I just heard someone talking about at this town hall in New York talking about a silent coup. So silent coup, you know, not a soft coup, mm -hmm. but a silent coup. So I, you know, put that into Google. Sure enough, some loony start thing started in the 90s and then it was picked up on Fox News and it has to do with liberals and their prostitution ring and all the usual stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And every time that I take a rest and then something comes up like Seth Rich uh, or, <laughs> you know, Turk, the Turkey's joining the European Union. And as you say, because you don't see other people's ads on, say, Facebook, because Facebook will tell nothing about how many were bought or who bought them. We don't see other people's disinformation, just like you don't see my J. Crew dresses. <laughs> exactly, know? exactly. I think that's always such a sort of key part of it is to the skeptical, highly educated people who live in, in cities with liberal and progressive views. You're not the target. You know, you are yeah. not the target. And they, you know, you, you're not, you're not, you're not being shown this stuff. You, you haven't been identified. It's very unlikely. What's sort of useful about the Brexit case, what we know about it anyway, is that this wasn't just about Facebook facilitating the spread of lies and disinformation. It was about Facebook facilitating electoral fraud. And that's very key. So it's that Facebook as the, you know, as the crime scene multiple, mul you know, multiple electoral offences were committed, we now know during the referendum, they're being investigated by the police. And it's extraordinary, we've got our ex-Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, he now works yeah. for Facebook, and he was sort of a passionate, you know, pro-European, and they're just ignoring us. It's this very uncomfortable position that we're in in Britain in that Silicon Valley treats us as, you know, as a sort of colonial subject. Only what happens in America has any consequence because it only, it only answers to your lawmakers. So it really only pays attention to your press. 
there's many things about this story I feel it's like it's just sort of too big to contemplate and I think what's too big to contemplate there is is the sort of decline in power of the nation state yes. because you know this is Silicon Valley just showing that it is far more powerful than the British Parliament. I mean, we have entered a sort of a different era and a different age. And I think, you know, we're all having problems facing up to that. And I think politicians most of all. Among the other insidious things about Facebook, I don't think that it's even an analogy to call it an empire. It just is an empire and the biggest empire in world history. Forget about the sun never sets on it. The sun never sets on one pixel of it. It's the same lumbering colonial power that will only be brought down by some guerrilla stuff and some regulations. But the pushback, I mean, there are tiny signs of hope. I don't know if you saw, but Google owning YouTube announced that they've taken down some number of neo-Nazi videos. I don't know about you, but in following the stories, there's kind of tremendous ups and downs and highs and lows. And I just, I greeted that YouTube story with just sort of a, such utter fatigue because oh, yes, I started exactly. out, Report the, the, the very beginning of this story was I started out with Google and with Nazis and with Holocaust denial. And it was looking mm-hmm. at the way that you know, this was a this was a week after Trump's election that I started looking at the subject around fake news, and I discovered these you know horrific Google search results where mm-hmm. they were suggesting that Jews were evil and the Holocaust hadn't happened. And then from there, you look on YouTube, and YouTube has always been the dark things on the internet has always just it just it's been such a sewer, and that Holocaust yeah. denial stuff was just all over it. And um, it got downgraded by in the algorithm at some point, you know, before Mm -hmm. I was finding if you just put in, you know, I I was putting into YouTube the Holocaust and I was getting the suggestion the Holocaust is a lie. And then, uh, you know, in just pages and pages of results. Just think of the number of people around the world who've seen that content. It's like, yeah, well done, YouTube, for doing that. But I mean, what on earth have you been doing over this period of time? Right. What is that thought process around that? They've never just had what looked remotely like a reckoning. And for all, we've had mea culpas. And I think on Yom Kippur, Mark Zuckerberg ultimately took back the idea that Facebook's part in the election or to even suggest that it had a part was a crazy idea. He took that back. And, you know, he's always kind of beating his breast and saying that he's going to do better. But he still won't, as you say, even testify before the parliament. All right. I do want to go back to his statement that I do think is sophistry, that people vote on their lived experience. Because Mm. one of the effects that Facebook has tried to generate is that your lived experience is this experience it is not. I mean, it's almost like a set of religious principles. You know, if Facebook's an empire, it also has to get buy-in from, you know, on missionary work. And so, well, the world around you looks a certain way, But actually, it's this other thing with the kingdom of heaven and angels and whatever else. And and you point out so beautifully about this town in Wales, and I I hope you're not tired of talking about it, where the lived experience is nothing like the Mm. strange battles Mm. they're fighting or and we're fighting on on Facebook before the referendum. So can you just describe uh, again? I hope you're not tired of it, but describe that town and what you discovered about their exposure to Facebook. It was just the Brexit vote, you know, the morning after. It was just the enormity of the step of what was happening and what the country had voted for. It was just this incredible day of reckoning in Britain. I'm from Wales and they'd asked me to go 
And there was some, I can't remember what it was. There was some really significant football match going on. It sounds so, so <laughs> ridiculous now uh, in Cardiff. And so they'd said, OK, you go and do a report on that. And I was like, fine, I'll go and visit my mum. We weren't expecting it. That was the other, you know, shock of it. We, it was that it's just not what the polls had been saying. Anyhow, they said, go somewhere and write a report, you know, a reaction on the Brexit vote. I was thinking, well, where shall I go? Where shall I go? And then I thought, I know, I'm going to go to. So this is a bit which I cut from my TED talk. So if you'll indulge me. Oh, please. I decided to go to Edvale, which is this town in the middle of the, the, the valleys. It was the old coal mining centre. So the South Wales Valleys was the source of, it, you know, it, it powered the Industrial Revolution. It was the coal from there which went round the world. And Ebbyvale mm-hmm. had this, it was the biggest steel works in the world, I think, which was there wow. right up until the 80s, early 90s. And That's... it was famous, it's also famous because it was where the MP Aniron Bevan is from. So Aniron Bevan mm-hmm. is this kind of huge figure in Britain in that he is the man who created the National Health Service. So mm. our until 1948, it was, you know, private health care. And if you were poor, you just didn't get health treatment. And after the Second World War, when we got um, a, a Labour government was voted into power, you know, they really they did this, you know, really, really radical things. And universal health care for all was one of them. And it's one of the things which we see very clearly being under attack now. So the only thing I did pay attention to in terms of Donald Trump being here was that he made a specific statement and said that in any trade negotiation with Britain, he said the NHS, the National Health Service, has to be on the table. And this just fills us with horror in Britain because it really is a sort of something that does really unite the country. It is sort of like our love and respect for the NHS. Anyway, so that was one of the reasons why I thought I'd go to Edwardsville. And initially I was walking around, there's a little town centre, you know, it's it's surrounded by these green hills. And I just walked around, I just talked to person after person about Brexit. And I kept on being told it was the immigrants, it was because of the immigrants. And that's why, mm-hmm. you know, that's why people were telling me they'd voted for it. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like looking around, it's like all these little towns in that part of Wales, you know, so you don't meet any immigrants. I met this one Polish woman who worked in a factory there. And she said, you know, she said, well, there really aren't any immigrants here. She said at all. And she said, I just think it's that she said people, you know, they were given a private vote. And, and, you know, this, this sort of, Stuff came out is what you know. She felt that it was very much a vote against her, and it was a sort of racist vote. Wait, so a Polish woman was the only immigrant you could find? Yes, yes. Okay, I mean it's kind of all white, and it's got one of the lowest rates of immigration in the country. I mean, it's just it's just not an area which has seen immigrants at all. But this was the thing that people kept on telling me about. You know, it was Mm -hmm. the stuff about immigration. The whole thing was just sort of puzzling. But then, what was so weird and what blew my mind? is that there was a lower part of the town and it's where the steelworks used to be. And mm-hmm. I, I, but you could, there's no trace of the steelworks now. You go down there and it's, you know, it's a sort of, it's just got these gleaming buildings. So, the, you know, this yeah. College of Further Education is this beautiful architect design, glass and steel 
structure flooded with light. Amazing. I can vouch. I saw the pictures in the TED Talk and I don't know, you might think you were in Cupertino. I don't know where you think yes. you were. Some especially sparkly part of Paris suburbs. So and that was all paid for by the European Union. But it was, you know, all around there was this, there was this new business center. You know, the, the, the roads around there are amazing. They've just put in two carriageways. You know, this the whole thing, there was the new train station, that whole train line. I mean, we don't invest in train lines in Britain. You know, public transport's been, you know, underfunded. But but because in this area of Wales, they, so uh, Wales is one of the areas in Britain where they got, it was called, I think it was tier one funding. And it, essentially, this was the European Union's kind of redistribution of wealth around the union. So certain areas, mm. it didn't depend upon the country. It just depended upon the area. And if you could show, you know, it's like an area, especially where industry had gone, where there was high levels of poverty or whatever, you got this extra, you got these extra amounts of funding from the European Union. And that is mm. what had happened in this town in Wales. So it was like the, the places which had been the, you know, the poorest, the worst hit by deindustrialization, you know, mm-hmm. got most out of the EU and, and disproportionately, as I discovered walking around, voted to leave the European Union. And did they just not know where the goodies were coming from? The thing about the referendum is that I, I've got huge amounts of sympathy and respect because people who've sort of felt locked out of what's going on in the rest of the country and who don't have good jobs and don't have secure employment. It was a protest and it was, you know, it was marketed to them as a protest. And it was, you know, one in the eye for what, you know, what was being they were told was the metropolitan elite. And they were told that, you know, that to these complex problems, that this was the answer. And is there that you say metropolitan elite, is there the same phenomenon? Because parenthetically, I do think the temptations and the parallels, temptations to liken Brexit to Trump's rise, you know, obviously are powerful. And there are some figures that even overlap. But there are obviously some distinctions, too. And I don't think I understand how much in the country in the UK is there the sense of owning the libs of kind of smacking back at the cosmopolitan crowd that they see as having kept them down and that process being such a driving force. I mean, you've probably seen jokes about owning the libs, the ultimate cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yes, that phrase owning the libs isn't really used apart from sort of some far right figures. But yes, that's definitely the spirit of it. And it's this ridiculous notion so Nigel Farage, our version of Donald Trump, yeah. he paints himself as, you know, a man of the people. You know, he's, a, he's, mm. a, he's like the anti-politician man of the people. This is a man who's been a professional politician. He's been in the, in the European Parliament for 23 years. Amazing. And before yeah. that, you know, he was a stock, but he worked in the, you know, he was a trader in the city. The guy who funded him, who's the person who I've, you know, spent an awful lot of time trying to investigate and understand where his money comes from. He's called, he's this in, this businessman called Aaron Banks. Yes, A-R-R-O-N, right? As I point out to him, you know, he's a privately educated millionaire. I went to a very ordinary school. I live in a, in a small flat. I mean, it's sort of, it's absurd, the notion that they, that, that, that you know, that they're trying to peddle, but they, they do it really effectively. And they really learned how to dominate social media. And that, again, is the overlap with Trump. And there are so many overlaps because, you know, it's the same companies that were involved, you know, Cambridge Analytica and and the same data and 
you know, Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. the, you know, involved in both Britain and America and the links between Farage to, you know, the Trump campaign. Very, very clear. Roger Stone, Julian Assange, some of the rogues gallery of, you know, the Trump-Russia affair, of course, are also connected to Farage. There's really, really fascinating, which are kind of not, I don't think, yeah, not so well understood perhaps in America. But Farage is, is, is this sort of fascinating figure because he links very clearly through to the Trump campaign but also to the mm-hmm. European far right, which also links closely to Russia. He's been this sort of bridgehead in that sense between the sort of European far right and the American far right, I think. But yes, there's, there's these, I mean, you know, one of the very first things which, you know, hooked me in to, to the never ending box set that is the sort of um, <laughs> Trump Brexit Russia saga yeah. was Farage's trip to visit Julian Assange in March 2017. So in, in London. Shall I, do you want me to recount a bit of that? <laughs> are you kidding? Our listeners are fascinated, as everyone should be, with Julian Assange, uh, now sadly arrested. But in happier days when he was with his cat in the embassy, yes. the Ecuadorian embassy, when the Ecuadorians still liked him. Exactly. What was kind of so funny about about it was that when at the time it, it happened, it was March 2017. And, you know, it was like the world was on on fire. It was every day mm-hmm. there was some new massive story, you know, like Trump, you know, it was the early days of the of um, of the Trump presidency when just crazy stuff was happening every day. And so mm-hmm. it was this sort of like ridiculous moment. Farage was caught coming out. He was he was snapped on the steps of the Ecuadorian embassy. And it was like, oh, everybody was just sort of like, oh, well, that's kind of nuts. We didn't know that Farage and Assange, you know, were in communication. And, and, and then it just sort of like it was forgotten. But then, and he was asked at the time when he was coming down the steps, this BuzzFeed reporter went and sort of caught him coming out. And, and she said to him, what were you doing there? And he said, I can't remember. That was the answer he gave. <laughs> oh, the, he was, I can't recall even I seconds after. That's a new audacity. Yeah. But then what happened is there was an American contact I had, very highly placed, really good contacts. And he said to me, look at the timing of Nigel Farage's visit. Go and look very closely at the timing of it. And he said, you know, in times of sort of extreme scrutiny, you can't rely upon electronic communications. And it is, you know, you do need to look at like the yeah. movements of people. Anyway, so I went and I looked. I found that there was a tweet from a, tw- from a passerby who had said, oh, look, I've just seen Nigel Farage going into the embassy. And then there was a tweet back from a BuzzFeed reporter going, oh, is he still there? And mm. that was, you know, so the first tweet was something like 9.30. BuzzFeed responded. Mm-hmm. They get down there. They snap him coming out of the embassy. I think it's about 11 a.m. Their story goes up. It was about an hour and a half later. And literally minutes later, Julian Assange puts out a tweet and says, coming later today, the Vault 7 leaks. Okay, big Mm -hmm. new press announcements, major news, Mm -hmm. Vault 7 and it's just, you know, it's the timing of it is just weird because he, they've been trailing Vault 7 for weeks and weeks. But mm-hmm. suddenly, suddenly they do, um, you know, they, they, they make this big announcement. And it was like, why? And, and then you look and think, well, what was happening in the news that week? And what was happening in the news that week was that the sort of the 
FBI's Russian investigation was really hotting up. It was around the time there was the big to do about Flynn. Probably before the appointment of Mueller, maybe even before the firing of Comey. Exactly. It was getting serious and it was on the front pages of the American newspapers all week. And then it was suddenly blown off. The news cycle for the next three days was all about Vault 7 and about how the CIA Mm. was spying on the American people. So, I, you know, I just found that very curious. And it was just sort of like, you know, you started thinking about it. Farage had just been in Washington. He'd just, he'd just come. It was, um, it was about a week after he'd come back from Washington where he'd had dinner with Donald Trump. And he just, you know, it was, it was just, I found it so curious that this, you know, that we knew that there was this, this that, and it was the way that, you know, Julian Assange had been, see, you know, he's, we, we'd seen him as a libertarian, as a sort of, as a crypto libertarian. But then seeing that actually mm-hmm. there was this crossover with the sort of right-wing libertarianism and, and yeah. that there was whatever else there was, there was some sort of, you know, what looked like a channel of communication there. The questions around that have only increased and, you know, we just had a small bite-sized sample of it in the Mueller report. But this question mm. of, there's always just been questions about the communication between the Trump campaign mm. and Julian Assange in the embassy in terms of the timings of the leaks, which were so damaging to Hillary Clinton's chances. And there's another, so if I can tell you, there's another thing which I've been meaning to sort of, um, been wanting to write about this actually again, because it sort of, it went under the radar a bit. But there's another fascinating coincidence, which was, it was a day or two before the WikiLeaks dump on the eve of the, of the DNC, the, the, the last Democratic convention before the election. Nigel Farage had dinner with Roger Stone at the Republican convention, Uh and he's lied about it subsequently. I've been listening to, you know, one of these endless true crime podcasts. For some reason, the only relaxing thing that I can do when I'm not thinking about Trump is to think about either Chernobyl, happier days, when all (laughs) we had to think about was radiation covering the whole earth, or true crime podcasts. And I sort of realized in the most recent one when a young woman is killed, that they really just should dispense with due process when a woman is killed because it's always the boyfriend or the husband. <laughs> so I just sort of thought we could save legal resources by just going straight to. And similarly, we could save a lot of money that whenever anybody went to the Ecuadorian embassy in London and then something weird happened afterward, mm. it is the Russians and this little cabal of far right figures, including Farage and Trump and Stone, and just go straight to handcuffs. That's what I think. I just think mm-hmm. we, don't, yeah. we don't need to bother. It's just like the husband always did it. And there's always <laughs> Julian Assange and Roger Stone. And we're, you know, but fortunately, I... And Nigel Farage. Yes, yeah. and Nigel Farage. There's so many weird links here as well, because there's this other weird link, okay, which is that Nigel Farage had a money launderer working for him. And I can call him a money launderer because... On the day after, they had that dinner, okay? So he had that dinner with Roger Stone at the Republican National Convention. This mm-hmm. was um, a day or two before WikiLeaks dumped that massive leak at the which blew the Democratic Convention apart. Yes. And on that day, on the same day, his aide got busted by federal... They were stepping off a plane in Chicago and a whole team of federal agents swooped in and arrested his head of fundraising, the aide who was traveling with Nigel Farage. On, and they indicted him on 21 counts of money laundering and wire fraud and all sorts of extraordinary things. But even when you say, 
I can call him a money launderer. Sometimes with a Constantine Kalimnik, who's a figure in the yes. Manafort saga. Part of this is for listeners, because I know that we might tend to use too much shorthand. But, you know, I, I'll do the same thing. We can, t- I think we can call him a spy, you know. Yes. But that, that tick of saying, I think we can call him leftover from a time when journalists, you know, when we had to be, ex- well, and, and still now, extremely cautious. It's really interesting to me that news organizations, as we've been all called fake news, news in our, in our case, the president doesn't like, is fake news. We've gotten ever more accurate and careful about our sources. I mean, at some point I thought, has Trump ever once forced an actual correction to an mm. article? Do you know, like, for all the fake news, he just never has, like, written one letter to the editor saying that they, you know, spelled his mother's name wrong. It's amazing. (laughs) So the incredible accuracy and carefulness. But sometimes it trips us up because Uh you should be allowed to say at this point that Farage is in bed with the Russians, (laughs) is meeting with Julian Assange (laughs) and that, you know, and that his and his number two guy is a money launderer. And, you know, it's it feels a little like you know, the abuse stories that have kind of worked in parallel in the United States, the Me Too stories and so forth, where yeah. like, you're not allowed to say it until you, and until you have so much evidence that it's too late. It's so extraordinary because Nigel Farage is, you know, he's, he's created this new party. The facts about his role and his relationship yeah. with Trump. This is not talked about in Britain. There is no broadcast outlet for this kind of stuff, really. And I'm just painted as the sort of, you know, the crazy woman, who, you know, is, is sits at her computer and makes stuff up. And oh, it's, it's kind yeah. of exhausting. It's like you said, I think it's that it is a form of gaslighting in that sense. Yeah, we're constantly told that we're the ones with Trump derangement syndrome or that, you know, you're the crazy lady at your desk. I hope that that doesn't ever get to you, though, because one of the stateside phenomena is just this total, you know, admiration. I hope you feel it on Twitter for your work. I mean, you're just like you're just this one woman band. Um, You know, how did she do it again? The reason I have a one woman band is because we don't have the same structures and institutions and backup and support and outlets that you've got in America. So although Trump is in many ways worse, you've got a huge number of media outlets and journalists who are all over this story. You've got podcasts like yours. You've got news shows. There's just not an equivalent here. And that is this huge systemic problem that we have in terms of our press landscape here. So I work for the Guardian and Observer newspapers, and we're free and independent. You know, we're owned by a trust. It's like a non-profit. But all of the other newspapers, essentially, are owned by foreign oligarchs. So they're either owned by Rupert Murdoch, who is right in the middle of this, or they're owned by this guy, um, Eugenie Lebedev, who's, you know, whose yes. father worked for the KGB. Amazing. And then, you know, we've, we've always been so lucky and we, we felt this, you know, huge amount of sort of pride and love for the BBC. But the BBC has, has become so problematic in covering this story. And essentially, the, its, way of, its way of dealing with that has been not to cover the story. You know, I'm like Typhoid Mary. I mean, they won't even let me near the... <laughs> near the um, you know, any of their sort of news or politics shows. 
That's a phenomenon absolutely known to people here. And we just have to hope that we'll be on the right side of history. I mean, I guess you have to have just take some kind of long view that you're proud that you didn't go to Vichy. I mean, you know, not to get too (laughs) exaggerated about it, you know, and we like try to keep our spirits up that way. But it is to have made the compromises. And here it's happened with NPR, you know, our national public radio and some of the other traditional media that there's a kind of sleepy, maybe to bring this back around the coverage of things like this, you know, farcical Trump visit with the royals is as if you're covering the relationship between America and England is really deck chairs mm-hmm. on the Titanic, or I don't know, it's something worse in a way. It's as if on the sinking Titanic, they suddenly decided to do a story about a socialite. I mean, the you know, one of the girls and what she was wearing. I mean, the attention to those things. And then I don't know if you saw this, but outrageous thing about how the Trumps themselves represent some kind of royal family. It was just awful. Mm. And I'm so glad that you're typhoid Mary. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel exhausted by it most of the time, I have to say, because we've been living with this deadline here in Britain at least theoretically, you know, you can have another election and, and get rid of Trump. I mean, that's that's the theory, although, you know, there's increasing questions Mark, I can see about that. But because this is a one-off vote and, you know, it was subverted. You know, this vote was yeah. corrupt. And there has been, a you know, an, an incredible cover-up in the sense of that the truth about what happened not coming out and the truth about the way that Farage and co was so entwined with Steve Bannon and with Trump. Yes. And still with Steve Bannon, right? I mean, he's all over Europe spreading his, whatever that is, his Bannon empire idea. Exactly. We don't know where his money is. I mean, you know, that we all, what, what we know is that Bannon has been all over Europe and offering everybody free money, free data, free polling, free analytics. So yeah. are, you know, are they, you know, is did Nigel Farage turn that down, you know? Yeah, right. Or is it that, you know, because, w- you know, what we see is exactly the same thing happening again now in that he's been crowdfunding using PayPal. So using an American company with mm. servers in America, which allows anybody to donate from anywhere in the world. And then that's laundered into British pounds and into his political campaign. And the only thing we know is that it could be coming from anywhere. Carol Cadwallader is a reporter for The Guardian. Thanks for joining me, Carol. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And that's it for today's show. What did you think? Find us on Twitter and share your thoughts. We can take it. I'm page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And while you're at it, sign up for Slate Plus. Today's your day. Get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. For only $35 for the first year, $35 for the first year, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. That's uh, Zlotties a day. A Slate Plus membership gets you all of Slate's podcasts, ad-free and wondrous perks like discounts to our live shows. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Avishai Artsy. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.